ATV Talk, the podcast presents Inspired. Sit down with your host, Leonard Duncan, as he interviews men and women whose stories are so inspirational that they need to be shared. Hopefully, their stories may inspire you and create a change. Mondays at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, Terramaster, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports Tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. GPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV Dampener with better control and handling with an upgraded vane and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talk Sandy. Travis, how are you, sir? I am good. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, thank you very much for sitting down with us here at ATV Talk. This is an inspired episode. Um, just so everybody knows, Travis Henschel is a man that I met uh, through Duncan Racing, and his life has got to be pretty inspirational for all of us. His sacrifices for the American people are are pretty horrendous, and we're going to talk about him today. And um, it's he's a staff sergeant in the Army, or was, and um, he's got a story to tell, and um, it means a lot to me. And I hope it means the same to everybody that listens to this episode. So um, here we go, Travis. Um, when did you get into the Army? Um, well, I was a kind of a shithead kid in high school and got into some trouble and decided to join the service um, right out of high school. So in 94. And uh, it was one of the greatest things that happened to me because it's pretty much straightened me up to real life and put my head on straight. Um, I decided to join knowing that I was joining, I wanted to know, well, what where, where would I be effective, most effective in the service? Do I want to be sitting at a desk? And I was like, no, I want to fight. That's what you would do if you joined the service is you'd be a fighter. So I joined the infantry because I didn't want to be in a plane or a tank. I wanted to be on my feet and be able to fight that way. It just felt like it was safer. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's how it started out. But uh, I did a couple... Um, yeah... So I signed up for like four years of active duty. I went to the basic training, went to the 101st Airborne. And then I went to uh, the DMZ in Korea for 13 months. And then... What was what was that like? Um, Korea is very cold. Uh, that was my first experience of realizing what actually goes on in the world um, as a third world country. Um or being next to a third world country or, you know, as North Korea, there were still things that were going on. Like, um, some people may remember when there was a sub that was attacked and blown up, a uh, U.S. helicopter went down in Korea. This is in 97. And, uh, so when I got there, it was, it was like the real deal. You know, you still see soldiers on the streets because Korea was at a cease, a ceasefire since the Korean War. So you still had soldiers come onto your buses, the trains, uh, basically looking for North Koreans. And um, the way they only could tell the difference is by almost, they say it's like an accent. 
they can tell by their accent if they're North or South Korean and as they would try to infiltrate. Did you have any conflict while you were there? Um, not personally, but when we were doing our expert infantryman badge um, to get our expert infantryman badge, there was uh, eight infantryers that tried coming across the DMZ that's about a mile up the road. And uh, the South Koreans took them out, but they were worried about more coming across. So as we continued training, they did just issue us ammo and we just continued training. But so that was my first experience with, oh crap, this is actually a real deal. (laughs) (laughs) Not just training. So, and how old were you at that point? Um, I was 20. I turned 21 while I was in Korea, but you were able to legally drink. When you were twenty, so my twenty first birthday wasn't the party thing. Yeah, it didn't didn't matter anymore. Well, weren't you able to drink on the base at eighteen? As long as you were in the base on yes. the base, yes, you could. So, <laughs> what was the big deal at that yeah, point? Right? The figure if you can serve your country, you can drink a beer. <laughs> there you go. I, I agree with that. <laughs> um, scoot forward a little bit. Yeah. There you go. Um. So after you were in Korea, where'd you go? Um, at the time, I was married to Tyler's mom, and uh, we kind of came to an agreement where she wanted me to get out of service. I did not want to get out of service, um, but I said, if that's what you want, we need to make sure we have benefits for our son. And uh, so we agreed, or she ended up getting a job at Kaiser. And so we had full benefits. So agreement was agreement. So I did get out of service, but I continued on joining the National Guard. I joined the National Guard in San Diego. So I continued doing what I like to do. And uh, was that a full time gig or just part time? No, National Guard's, uh, like they say, one week in a month, a couple weekends or a couple weeks out of the year. But it turns into more than that. That's just kind of the baseline they try to tell you, but ends up being a, a little bit more than that. But yeah, it's just basic. Is is that how you ended up going overseas? So yeah, so to speed things up, I did that, and then um, I was also um, working for my grandfather's plumbing company, and I went through the apprenticeship, um, and then um, September 11th happened. Once September 11th happened. Got uh, activated uh, to Arizona. Um, after that gig, I figured I wasn't going anywhere or getting deployed because we were supposed to go to Afghanistan at that time. Um, so I got out of the service, finished my apprenticeship, got my journeyman's card, and then um, my military best friend John Todd um, was up in a unit in Washington and said, "Hey, we're getting activated." They were already activated in three. When I right right after I got out, and then um, so oh seven they found out they were going that unit was going to get deployed in oh eight, so I volunteered to join to go up there with that guard unit, knowing they were getting deployed. Um, I had already served with John, so he wanted me as his team, one of his team leaders. So I basically used my drill money or my plane tickets to fly up to that guard unit every every month to do training. Um, and I was the only one in that unit that was flying from out of state to join that unit. And, uh, my reasoning was I didn't want to grow old, not being able to fight at my age and then regret the fact that I didn't serve my country like I've been always wanting to since I hadn't been able to go overseas and fight. Um, I got a lot of criticism from some friends, uh, some coworkers who were like, how could you do that? How did you leave your family? This is, I don't think you compare it. I don't think those individuals can compare it to a warrior mentality. That's just who I am. I wanted to fight. That's why I wanted to do it. I just, I could not grow old and go, well, I could have went, but I didn't. There's guys that are doing it, especially after September 11th. You know, I just, I had to do my part. I wanted to at least say I did whether anything happened or not, at least I guess I manned up a little. So, unlike um, myself, who regrets it for not taking a step. And 
that's just how I was going to feel. Like, like, you know, I just knew it deep down inside. I was going to regret it. So I, uh, we got deployed in 08, um, went to Iraq. And as an infantry unit, your goal is, or you're always trained never to be seen. No lights. Um, you look at night. And our mission was more of a security mission, and we did everything that we were told not to do or trained to do. And our job was to drive down the road, which you don't do as an instrument. And uh, knowing the chances were that you're going to get blown up. And it wasn't the fact of if you were, it was like when, because they would go off. Some vehicles would get missed. But I was the lead vehicle, and it just was a matter of time before I probably would get blown up. But our vehicles were so sophisticated, you figured it would just you'd get hit, and no big deal. Well, June 14th, 2009, which ironically is uh, Flag Day, and it's the Army's birthday, um, we were out on a mission, and... Uh, I stopped our unit from what I remember as I stopped our unit um, I was communicating with the other units that were up ahead in the, in the next town and uh, communicating on our MTS device which is a cool almost like a computer system in our vehicles and then we have a blue force tracker which you can see the actual vehicles you can tap on them see what unit they are and everything and uh, found out they were coming through. Then there was a route clearance team, which is an engineer team that for their job is to find bombs. And uh, we can't cross um, two, you, you, two vehicles cannot cross in that town or that bridge. It's only one vehicle wide at a time. So we had to hold up. We waited for two units and a route clearance team to pass. And then we continued on. Once we got over that bridge and through that town, Right towards the end of that town is the last time I remember. And uh, and they had already came from that way. They came the opposite direction towards us. And uh, so it was. It's a gamble. Um, and yeah, I guess was it a detonated device or was it something you guys hit? Um, it was a detonated device by a man. They actually did catch a guy. It was actually a firefight also, but I was not coherent. And I was, which I called the incident, which everybody had to now take care of me and my guys and do everything that I guess I was hoping to do when I went over there, but I was the, as the lead guy. How long had you been in country? Um, 10 months. You were in, t- in country 10 months before that happened? Yeah. So you had already experienced firefights and already been in the thick of it? Um, no no major firefights. There was little things that some of the other guys had been in in our convoys. I was in the lead vehicle, so sometimes if they try hitting the middle, they would be in some incidences. Um, we would stop, try, you know, my goal, well, my job was one, land, navica- land navigation and looking for devices or bombs um, the best as you can. Um, but also keeping the um, convoy moving at the same time. So we're up very far ahead from our actual unit. So they can keep traveling. We have enough time to stop and then we can speed forward if there's anything in between. Um, getting you know, civilian vehicles out of the way or whatever it may be. But our missions were at night in the dark. And, um, so they've seen you coming and that's how they... Yeah, they see you coming because we have big giant spotlights because we're trying to find things. And um, there's times where we do shut the lights off and we try to find things through thermal. Um, but majority of the time, you're just you're trying to see whatever you can and get to wherever you need to get to. Is there anything specific you remember remember about that day or night? I um, should say. Well. It was the Army's birthday, so they did have like a run first thing that morning. Our mission was at night. Um, we had our normal um, um, 
mission briefing, where we were going. This is what we do if this happens. You, you constantly go through reaction to contact or whatever's going to happen in a mission. And you do that before every mission. So you go into a briefing room, we all get together with the main leaders and we talk about if this happens, this is what we're going to do. This is the base we're going to get nearby. This is a medic, medic back or go through the whole process of what's going to happen. Um, replay things out. If this vehicle gets hit, this vehicle is going to do whatever. So just so that it's fresh before you go out. And then yeah, obviously the chaplain comes in, does a prayer, and then you head off for your mission. So I don't remember anything um, once that happened. Um, it was an EFP, though, as an explosive form projectile or electronically formed um, penetrator. Um, it's a basically like a copper disc. It's like a, if you look at like a very flat soccer guns, there's real flat ones, almost shape, shaped or machined out like that, but they're solid. Um, and they sit on a canister. Um, they're usually eight to 10 inches are the most effective. Once they get to 12, they say they just kind of blow apart pieces. Um, they hit with so much heat and force that the copper turns into liquid. So it's almost like water driven, but it's liquid copper. And that is what cuts the vehicle apart. goes right through the armor like nothing. So they try to put reactive armor outside that's supposed to have some type of chemical or gel that's supposed to help cool that copper. But they hit in front of all that, right at the door jam on the driver's side, on the front passenger, um, as the truck commander, as they would call it, of that vehicle. And it just... Uh, Got disintegrated everything, took the computers, threw them into my face, took my helmet off. Um, actually brought my helmet, but I don't know if I remember showing it to you. Um, it took a piece of shrapnel and blew through where I had opened my head up. Um, safety glasses came off or embedded in the door. I had one shrapnel come through my left eye and then through my, you know, just little stuff through my face. Um, do you have any problem with your vision because of it? I do now. Um, originally, I had some laser incidences, um, some class three lasers that hit me in the right eye, but left eye took the shrapnel. Thought that the doctors thought they were going to lose, I was going to lose my eye, but they went in and, which is bizarre to me, how sophisticated or medical is. They went in the eye, they um, drained the eye, they go inside. Um, they pulled the shrapnel out of my eye through an incision and then lasered, kind of like tack welding down, but with a laser on my retina because it had detached a little bit. And then they refill your eye with gas and then a liquid and they seal your eye back up. And I couldn't see out of that eye. I didn't see out of that eye for probably a month. After I was injured, I couldn't see out of it. And then after the surgery, I didn't see out of it for a while. And when I did start to see, which some of you would probably understand, like the bubble level, you have this liquid in there. Mm -hmm. So every turn you turn your head, you can see this liquid. Right. So I would always line it up on pictures and things in the hospital because I'm just laying in bed to see this level. (laughs) 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 It's kind of funny. Um, But, uh... What? If you can... Talk us through your recovery. Um, by far the most challenging thing is the recovery. And I, with a lot of treatment through other guys, I've witnessed their recoveries also. And it's just, it's very hard. For me, though, because it's kind of my own personal experience with my recovery, can't compare it to anyone else's. Um, very frustrating. One, to go from using your hands as I was a plumber and an instrument, everything's done with your hands. And not being able to use my hands at that time was one of the most frustrating things ever. You can't feed yourself, you can't dress yourself, you can't even wipe your own ass. It's just very embarrassing 
at certain times, and it's just very frustrating. Um, I was a very physical, active person. I love to work out. I love to exercise. Um, I love to ride ATVs, dirt bikes. I love the desert. I grew up in the desert. Um, not being able to do those things again, just, it was, it sucked. Um, once I did start to use my hands a little bit more, it was the leg issue. Uh, my tibia was blown out, so I couldn't walk. My leg was in a brace for almost two months, so I had a lot of atrophying. Somebody had lost all my muscle in my leg, so I couldn't, I, I couldn't run. I couldn't put weight on that leg. Um, if I slightly bent it, it would just collapse because it can't pull my weight up. So that would happen just thinking you had muscle downstairs or anything and you just fall to the ground sometimes. Um, the other part of that is the mental part um, where the government really likes to feed troops or wounded people with medications. And so I was never on meds um, until that. Besides your typical ibuprofen or Motrin, because you can get it, and if you're having a little bit of pain, you would take it. But after being injured, I now became a subject on um, mood pills, nerve pain, nerve pills to pain pills um, to uh, pills to counter-react the side effects of the mood pills or psychological-type pills or whatever it may be to keep you from being angry or if you felt a certain way, they would just say, oh, you need this. Oh, you need this. Um, I had a... By the time I was done, even though I wasn't on all of them at the same time, I had two one-gallon-zip-lock bags full of just meds. Wow. And I saved them all. At one point, I was like, holy crap, I'm on all, I was on all these. Um, when I realized, before I was on all the meds, though, the back up, I realized, I didn't realize I had an issue until uh, I don't know. It, it, all I can say is a college kid who must have been anti-military or whatever, but I had purple heart plates and he was following me and he was making comments and guess you should have went to college instead, just totally berating the fact that, you know, I was injured, had purple heart plates. And at that moment I had snapped and that was the, it was after actually I had a couple hand surgeries. Um, and I had tunnel vision and I followed the guy and I didn't stop until I, was going to catch this guy and I didn't really know where I was or what I was doing um, and then once he finally stopped up by the college area he went through the gas station and then stopped kept going he got stuck at a red light I blocked traffic my truck I got out hobbled over there my hands were still wrapped from surgeries and my other hand had this like plastic brace on it because I had my fingers were pinned and I just grabbed the bed of his, I think he had a little four ranger truck and I just started swinging and I didn't stop until he drove off. And at that moment, not at that moment, but once I left and started going back towards the hospital because he was gone now, I left. I got to my appointment and I said, I need to see somebody because I think I was going to kill somebody. I literally had never felt that before. And then that's when, that's when meds started coming my way. Well, you need this, you need that. Um, and then one day when I found out that I was, I couldn't do meds anymore, um, I was leaving my house to go to appointments and, um, my ex-wife, Sandy, you know, she, Called me and said, Hey, you left the uh, front door wide open with the keys in it, or the keys are in the driveway because I left them on the bottom of my car or truck. And I was leaving my house insecure. And that, anyone who knows me, as any of my friends or family know, that I'm huge on security and put my house and my family. 
And for me to do that made me go, these pills are making me not who I am. As much as I may have needed them initially to maybe down <laughs> drop me from where I was as I don't know, angry. I don't know. I wasn't this psychologist that prescribed them, but I was like, I can't do these anymore because I tell you how I'm feeling, and then you say, Okay, well, we're going to give you this to counteract that. And we're going to give you this to counteract that. And I just felt like I was walking around like a zombie. I had no thought process. It was, I come home, I uh, stopped talking to all my friends. Um, I stopped talking to family. I wanted to go to family gatherings. I literally just isolated myself and never did anything. And I just would sit on my couch and just be zoned out on all these meds. And after time, it just it wore on everything. And I finally one day went in and I said, I don't know. I honestly don't know the turning point, except for when I left my house insecure to where I went in and said, I'm not taking any more of your meds. And they said, well, you can't just stop taking them. And I said, bullshit, F you, I'm going to. And I never went to another appointment again when it came to them. I only went for my hands and physical therapy type stuff. And I stopped in straight up cold turkey and I ended up losing, started to lose weight again. Um, I started, you know, I'm jumping all over. That's when um, Tyler, wanted, Carl, and I were in the desert riding with my son, and racing got me, got my head back on straight, it seemed like. And it was my son, living through my son and helping him that I could put my energy towards my kids. And that's where the starting point started when my son was just really good at riding into the end of the desert and we couldn't shake him. He's you know 14 years old. We just couldn't shake this kid anymore, chasing me and Carl down. We grew up in the desert and like hey, he's like, Yeah, I'll I don't do a race. So we went down off the home, they had an off-road show there and District 38 was there and we're like, oh shit, you don't you only need to be 15. To start racing. So we put them in a race and on an old Predator 500, <laughs> 14 year old going on 15, and he, you know, put him in beginner and he beat all the beginners and then most of the novices and beat some of the intermediates. And they're like, Your son's not a beginner. He can't race beginner in the gun. He's like, well, You told us to put him in beginner. Well, we oh, never done this before. So that's when I came to you and was like, I would like to build a quad. Oh, what should I do? And first time I ever met you, you were like, well, this is, you can't use the bike you have. You need to do this, 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 and this. And I was like, shit, that sucks. <laughs> you were straightforward with me. But to go back, it, it gave me a purpose again, helping my son when he started to race. I got joy out of life again. It put me towards something. And then he started racing and he was starting to puke after races and wasn't in the best of shape. We needed something we didn't know. Um, he was dating a girl at a time where her, her mom knew Coach PJ and his wife, um, who does chiropractic. And so she got myself and Tyler um, a personal training um, thing for Christmas. And so we went. I couldn't even do a step up on my right leg. And the way Coach was made me get that drive again. And it helped Tyler. And we just, we just started. I was like, this is what I'm going to do with my son. One, it's going to be good for me. Because I need to get back in the shape. You were in shape when I started going there. And I'd already been going there for a little while with Tyler. Yeah. And um and 
I saw Tyler get done racing. We would ride for the weekend and he would go do a race and he'd get done racing and we'd go for more hour long rides after the fact. And he just wasn't puking anymore and he just seemed like he had the endurance of no other. And it made me very proud that he would go on his own once he started driving, did it on his own. And I kept going for as long as I could doing that. And then I started, Mike started being able to use my leg again. I started running. So if I was to help anybody else out there when it came to anything that came to meds, is if you could get off of those meds or not do those meds, they have to be the worst thing for you. Physical exercise has been has been the best healer for me. I don't need any of that shit. As long as I can exercise, it does something to you on the inside that you don't no med could ever do. But that's me. When you were recovering. Well, let me rephrase the question. As you recover, because I know you, and I know you're still doing that. I know that there are things that are that are walls that you just won't go near. Um, is it getting easier every day? Are you facing those things? Are you are you finding the answers that you need to make it okay, to make it okay to make it better? Um. Yes. Um. It's time, and then it's learning to know what your triggers are and what you need. Like, I know I need to do exercise. I know when, if I come across somebody who wants to be horrible, but they mean nothing absolutely to me, to ignore those individuals because consider the source of where it's coming from. They have no effect on their life. Um, and you shouldn't allow that. So I've learned to adapt and to deal with it and to know what I need to do. But that was time and that was experience going through shitty moments. So it's not like day one, you just somebody can figure that out, but hopefully they hear someone else's story. They know, okay, well, maybe if I try this, maybe it could help them. You know, so I but I, I actually do really well now when it comes to that stuff. I really do. It's been long enough now. Um, when my alive days, as what they call it, um, comes back up June fourteenth, it brings up some stuff, but it's not as bad as it was. Um, I can still contact guys from the unit. What are your memory that, what is the memory that causes you a problem on that day? Uh, my biggest issue was I had no memory of it. I woke up and the first thing I asked one of the guys from the unit was, is, is this a joke? You guys are fucking with me. Cause we always mess with each other anyways. And I thought it was a joke. I didn't know it was real. And he goes, no, you were blown. Um, I lost half. I lost half my blood supply on the on the ground there and in my vehicle. So my brain basically shut down, and I have zero memory of what had happened. So my biggest problem was always falling asleep because my brain couldn't remember, and it was it's like a blank spot. It's like, well, what happened? All I had is what the guys told me happened. I have no memory of it. So when that time does come, I do still question what really happened. Because I don't have, you know. Your short-term memory of, of you know, talking on the radio or doing what you were doing is is gone. Yeah, that's just what the guy said. I guess after we were blown up, I asked I did um, call my gunner and my driver's name to make sure they were okay. But that's just what they said. 
and then I don't, and then they said I was out. Was your, did your gunner, was he okay? My gunner took shrapnel to the leg because he's up on a platform up behind us. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was returned to duty. Uh, nothing major, just minor shrapnel. My driver was coherent. Um, so he does have more nightmares. Uh, but he did lose a finger. Um, he had multiple burn wounds and then took shrapnel also, you know, to his face and chest. But we did all live. Um, if that trigger man would have waited, I mean, the, where the EFP went through the door was at the door hinge. So you can only imagine that's only like another foot before actually, because our doors weren't long, they're more short but tall. So about another foot, and it probably would have went through both of us. So because it went through the hinge, it went through solid behind the dash and all that solid steel. And then it, but it blew at an angle towards me, which the computer took a lot of that damage also, even though I took a lot of shrapnel. But the main portion of that was dispersed by all the stuff that had to go through versus just the door itself. If it would have just been a few away, I don't know. And to the how fast we were going, yeah, it could have been a half, yeah. A blip. Yeah. So. As, as you recover, what, uh, what do you still have trouble with? Um, if you don't mind me asking, I'm sorry, I'm assuming. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, physically, uh, my hands, um, my right hand, I only have feeling in my pinky and my ring finger on my right hand. Um, my middle finger, index, and thumb are constant pins and needles, and that portion of the hand. So feeling, um, I can't bend them. So, um, it's more frustration. Um, obviously, as we get older, we're never in the best of shape as we were when we were younger. Um, so, I compare myself to that because I don't remember anything. So, I always feel like I'm still in the best shape of my life. So, mentally, I, I'm actually in a good place. Um, I've accepted it. It is what it is now. And I need to just, I need to move forward. Can I ask a question about accepting? Yeah. How, because I've never experienced, you know, there's been evidence crashing an ATV and break my shoulder, you know. Um, how do you mean accepting it when it happened? There's nothing you can do. You can't go back and undo it. You know, you had no control over it, but how can you not accept it? Because it's already done. Um, I think for a while I, I couldn't accept it. I think that's why I accept it now. Um, when I first began, I, I couldn't believe it. It happened to me. Why did it happen to me? Um, I was pissed off at the unit for giving us those type of missions where we were driving down the road, just waiting to get fucking blown up. I was mad at the world. I was mad at every individual I met. Like, you know, oh, you didn't do anything. You know, people, talk shit about the military, I'd be pissed. I'd be like, you didn't do shit for your country. So I held a grudge towards every human being. I was mad at everybody. I was not. I did not want to accept it. I wanted to go back over there. I wanted to continue serving. Once I realized I could not do that anymore, no matter what, I think that's when the acceptance started coming. How many, how long did that take? When I started realizing it was probably five, six years after I was growing up. So 
That was five years ago. Is when I probably started to make the adjustment of you need to move on with your life and this is what you have now. So you can't you can't dwell on it anymore. Yeah, because when I met you and the first time you came in the shop, it was fresh. And you made a, quite an impression on me because I had a conversation with you about my brother. You know, what can we do to help this guy if he comes back? You know, and I told him what he needs. And then Lauren and I got involved when you did come back uh, to did everything we could for you. Uh, but it was it was fresh. I mean, you, I could tell it was fresh. I mean, they didn't know how fresh, but yeah. I wasn't. A, we weren't friends at that point, so I didn't. I didn't pry very much. Yeah. So I, uh, I, uh, I don't know if I get more of an emotional reaction to it than you do. I'm sure you do in the right scenarios, but um, we were working out one day, and this is when we were at the cave a lot, and you got very upset one day and got in your truck and drove away. And that was the last time that you were a regular at the cave. And I never understood what was going on. Obviously, I know a little bit more now, but I still wonder, was it just frustration because you couldn't do, you didn't feel you could do the things that you wanted to do? Yeah, that was a the beginning of working out again. It was very hard. Um, I had internal issues with relation, you know, with my ex-wife, and I physically, yeah, I was starting to see progress in my ability again. And then when you try to hit that next level of okay, well, now I can start to do more with my leg. And now I'm starting to run. And now I'm running faster. Now I'm starting to lift more. But you want more. You want where you want to be where you were before you were growing up. I was 186 pounds. I could bench 15. I was a I was a monster and I was tiny. And it I was in the best shape of my life. And that's where I wanted to be. And I didn't realize at that time, you're never going to be that. You just can't. It's physically not going to happen with your hands, with your leg, your injuries. Now your back's jacked up. You don't have the mobility in your wrist, your knee, you know, just your shoulder, your elbow. You just not. And when you start to see progress, you don't want that progress to stop. And you hit another wall. And yeah, there was times I've done that. I was like so angry. I could not do it. I would, I would leave because I didn't know. I couldn't take it. I did that once I stopped going to coach. It was more of a timing issue, but I wanted more. I wanted to start doing more weights and different stuff. And that's when I started to go to a CrossFit place. And then I started seeing more progress and more progress. And I did the same thing there. There was times where I walked out. And then same thing, I'd come back and they'd be like, you know, or they would text me, hey, are you okay? It's like, I'm just super frustrated. I'll be back. You know, and then I would. I'd take a day off and come back and try to do it again. Keep going. So, and I'm sure people listening, same thing. You hit a certain age and you're like, man, I'm not just who I used to be. But when you're injured at the best shape of your life and you wake up from that, you want that back instantly. It's not a gradual over time that you lost it. It's an instant. I instantly lost who I was and the blink up. I I don't even know how to respond um to that because nothing in my life has ever been like that. I know that it, uh, it was a lot of fun working with you and your boy. Oh, yeah. That was 
I think one of the furthest things was that 200 mile race he did. He wanted to do it. And I, I would do anything for my kids. And I think that's where I get mostly emotional because I mean, the world to me. And I think part of my healing process was teaching my kids to, to be able to overcome stuff. So, do you think that your sacrifice has taught them anything? I know for a fact it has with Tyler. Uh, my daughter was very young. She, I would say yes, but I'm not sure at the level because just what her age was at the time. Where Tyler was, you know, 12 when it happened. And then, um, you know, when in high school, when I was going through the hardest time of my life, when he was in high school, so he was able to see all of it. He saw when I was angry, frustrated. I was very hard on him, you know, because I think what I was going through, I wanted him to be harder and be more an adult. And I have talked to him about that as, you know, one thing I regret. Because I didn't allow him to be a child long enough. I felt like, no, you need to be, because life's no joke. So, but I know with Tyler, yes, I see where his work ethic is now and how he is with work and everything he does. And he's very, I couldn't couldn't be more proud of him. A large portion of that is because of his father. Yeah, I hope so. Mm-hmm. So, emotions are all part of it, and one of the biggest things that a warfighter needs to come and do, in my opinion, is allow your emotions to come out. Um, I've never been. Um, I have only heard stories. Um, I have other friends that have served in the military and went through some pretty horrific things. Um, Dave Ogden, you you know him, you've met him. Um, He told me a story about driving in his car. And when he came home, he couldn't drive on the freeway without anxiety, you know, because if he'd see a piece of trash or see something on the side of the road, it was, it was, it it, it was a problem. And uh, I noticed a difference in him from before he left to when he came to home. And, uh, yeah, that was one of the things too. When I got back driving, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I was super paranoid driving. Um, because in country, if there's anything on the side of the road, it's a possible threat. Um, you come home, what do you see when you drive down the freeways? Transcapers, trash, yeah. people put it, digging holes on the side of the road, um, you know, to anything, construction work on the side of the road. It doesn't matter. A, a stopped vehicle. That's we're a huge sign. We're a very spoiled country. Yeah. Well, we don't even know how good we got it. And there are people trying to dismantle us. You know, I, I, I've got to do some traveling around the world and, uh, no, I've never been in combat and I've never been in, uh, I've been in some negative places and, um, home is, is always been amazing. No matter where you go in this country, it's pretty amazing. Um, you can cross the border in Mexico and I, trust me, my wife's from Mexico and I love Mexico and. And I enjoy going there, but there's just places that you just don't go in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is there uh, anything else that you wanted to touch on while we were talking? Um, I know that this was important for you. And I know that it's hard for you. I don't know what questions I'm supposed to ask because to be totally honest with you, Travis, 
I've never been in this situation before. Um, yeah, I, I was telling my girlfriend, my main, I've never talked to anyone really about a lot of just small conversation. So knowing I was doing this, I think the most I want to give out is to anyone else out there. If you can get off medications and you can work out or exercise, you need to seriously think about that. I don't think our medications are, they're not good for us. Period. I mean, they might help with pain if you have, after surgeries, I get that or certain things, but when it comes to the mental state of the psychiatrist saying, oh, you need this to, I don't know the words, you know, the mood pills is what they call them for us, you know, or depressants or certain things. If you sit and do nothing, you're going to get depressed. You know, like what's going on right now with COVID, you know? Right. People are depressed now because they're not doing anything that allowed me to do anything, you know? So exercise for me is the best medicine. So, well, I don't know how much you know about it, but what do you think about some of the holistic treatments and CBD and, and hemp and things like that? Do you think some of those would have been easier treatments and less emotionally effective? Or, um, or not affected but affect you emotionally so much? I don't know. I I never went that route. Um, I never wanted to put anything in my body except for booze. <laughs> I wanted to party or, you know, and that, that would make you depressed after you started drinking anyways. So, and with, the more I would exercise, the less I would drink, the less I'd be depressed. Without the medications, endorphins. I always get out and get it. Endorphins just make you feel good. Yeah, you get a natural high. It's pretty awesome. So, but I cannot say that you know CBD or um, marijuana or anything like that would for me. I know other guys who have been injured. Some certain things did work for them. but some of them were double leg amputees, some were triple amputees. So they really couldn't do the physical things. So some of that stuff did help them. But, you know, I've also seen the negative sides in those individuals who were on a lot of meds. So, um, I have recently started doing a little bit more yoga and <laughs> meditation. Mm-hmm. So meditation has helped me a little bit also for now, you know, today. Mm-hmm. Um, I never had that before. So I think that has been my newest, um, evolution, evolution, I guess, is what helps. We're all evolving. Yeah. So how much anxiety did you have coming here today? A lot. I did. I, like I said, I've never openly talked about it because I'm not one of those individuals that likes to talk about himself. And I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't. Do you think that you will find uh, some type of Ease in 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 the darker compartments of your brain because of talking. Yes, naturally, because I am talking with someone I trust you um, about this, and I guess I do. Oh, I needed to step out of my box, my comfort zone. I've always stay within my comfort zone and what I know this is new to me. I've never gone publicly or anywhere or did an interview to talk about anything about me. So I 
Yes, I believe this would help me a lot because it would resurface some things, but it also got me to, I guess, talk about it on a different versus just talking one on one with an individual on the side. Do you do you think that because you know him better than everybody else? Do you think that it's opened him up to? let some of the fears he has out because he is just a man. He's not Superman. Um, and you need, you need a support system. What is your, what is your take on him opening up? Um, honestly, I, he's had a really good support system. His best friends have always been there for him. Um, when I met him, it was a really good time to meet each other, like in both of our lives. Uh, so we were at a really good point in our lives when we met each other. But I really think that the support system came from, like, really him deepening that, deepen his himself of his relationship with himself. So the relationship that he had with himself. Like, he had to really get to know himself in order to, you know... To get to where he is today. Exactly. And he had really good friends. Also, um, really good family. So, uh, good support system. So... Which I have. I've I was one of the fortunate ones to come home to a good support system with family and friends. Where there are individuals who do come back who don't have nothing. They don't have a family. Um, you know? And so they... There are soldiers who don't have that. There's soldiers that come back that aren't physically injured, but more have a mental... So they don't have the physical wounds, but they have the invisible wounds. And people don't realize that. But I have both. Have invisible wounds and physical, but people look past the invisible and only see the physical because it's in front of them. So they go, "Oh, well, you did this," you know, and they ask for others that are still walking the streets. They don't have the physical wounds, so people just they kind of just walk by. So those individuals get nothing, or when they do go to the VA or try to get treatment, they're look. Unless they look down upon, they look, they're bypassed. They're not looked at as, they're more questioned. They're questioned on. Well, I think one of the mistakes that we make is, as civilians, is we have no idea. We have no idea, no clue. And we think warfighters are impervious to damage emotionally. And I think it's a huge mistake in this in this society, and um, we should embrace you more um, and welcome you in more. Uh, you know how you know how I feel. I love you guys. Uh, I just I admire all of you because you. I think you're you're all heroes in my book, and and it's just something that uh, you know. I never I never made the the right choice in my opinion. I think I would have thrived in in that world and. Uh, Instead, I went racing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you still had adrenaline. <laughs> still yeah, adrenaline. Yeah, I was getting my adrenaline fixed another way. But um, where where do people go? The people that listen to this, any of the other military men or women, or fire or police that need help, where do they go? Um, honestly. Right now, I have no idea. All I know is, I know the VA is a lot better. Um, with our past urgency, they, they fixed the VA a lot. Um, they did really hard on that. So the VA is a better source. Um, I know one of her friends is actually a, um, a doctor who talks to patients that have PTSD. And stuff like that. 
Um, so we, if you are military, I would recommend going to VA. I know back in the day, right before I was injured, the VA was looked down upon a lot, but a lot of that stuff has been fixed. So, um, police and fire, I think they have their own organizations that they could probably reach out to. Um, but if anything, reach out, at least reach out to someone you can talk to, a friend. If you're afraid to reach out because you don't want to look down upon, talk to a friend, see what they can find out for you. Um, I know we all have at least that one friend. Oh my God. And if you have five friends who are willing to do anything for you in their life, you're the luckiest human being on the planet. You know, and I don't have five. I got very few. The real true friend. <laughs> real true friends are hard to find, and once you find them, you hold on to them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Travis, thank you. Thank you for trusting me. Thank you for coming on ATV Talk Inspired. Um, I don't know really how hard it is for you to do this. I know I get a little choked up even talking about it, and I didn't go through it. Um, I've seen you. You you look great. You know, you look. You, you've always looked pretty healthy, but right now I can just see there's a sense of you that's at ease, and and you're a different guy. I'm in a good place now. It took a while to get there. But I'm in a good place now. Well, I hope you stay there. And, and you know, if you ever want to reach out, I'm here. You know that. I, I do. Thank you. So, that being said, um, any of your friends, any other servicemen that you know that want to tell their story, I would love to have them come and sit down and talk with me. Um, and there again, it's it's your story. It's not my story. We're going to talk about what you want to talk about. We're not going to talk about what I want to talk about. Uh, I, uh, again, I don't know how much to, I don't know how to say thank you enough for your time and uh, for you to, to tell your story. Um, and if you have more to tell, you're more than welcome to come back at any time and, and talk more with me. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. Um, ATV inspired ATV talk inspired is a, a show or a conversation that we air every other Mondays at five o'clock Pacific standard time. Uh, we speak to people that, um, well, let's just be honest that inspire me <laughs> because I'm the guy that gets to pick and, um, my daughters haven't came to me with anybody yet. Um, to have on and sit down and, and talk with. So pretty much I've picked everybody that, that, uh, is going to be on inspired. Um, and, uh, you were one of my very first choices. It took a little while to get you here. Uh, I've taped some other shows with some other people, um, because of the downtime and the delay. Uh, if you know anything about what we do, it, it, you have to have content. You have to have, you have to have it taped. You have to have it, edited you have to have it logged um for having a full-time job i have another full-time job and i don't know what i'm doing i don't know what i'm doing so. <laughs> but again thank you very much i really appreciate your time young lady it was a very pleasure meeting you and thank you for for stepping in there a little bit um and you know that if he ever needs you just reach right on thanks again you guys have a great night thanks the team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Brought to you by Take-Two Custom Tees. Screen printing experience that is dedicated to quality and customer service every time. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience... Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org 
or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.